Hi, it's JP Mack, and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. Okay, so uh, this week we'll have part two of our multi-part series that uh, goes back and reviews basically all of the major topics I've covered um, since the inception of the Liberty Relearn podcast. So for those listeners uh, who've been around for a while, you'll hear a lot of familiar ideas. Maybe I'll be able to put them in different ways that make them interesting and uh, more understandable. Um, And for those of you who are new to the podcast, this will be serve as a good uh, overview of what the Liberty Relearn podcast is all about. Um, what I'm trying to impart to you, the listener, the, the sort of lessons I'm trying to impart onto the listener. So this is, will be a good preview uh, for those of you joining us for maybe the first or, or second time. So let's get right into it uh i want to talk first about fiscal responsibility of course that's a topic in the news uh currently we have multi-trillion dollar bills on the table um in the u.s congress so i think that's you know anything anytime you talk about a trillion dollars doing anything I think that's a pretty important thing to talk about. So let's talk about a little bit of about fiscal responsibility as a conservative value. Uh, American conservatism may differ from that of other countries, but but fiscal conservatism is basically transcends those geographical and national differences so in other words fiscal responsibility or conservative fiscal responsibility is the same anywhere or fiscal conservatism uh, is the same everywhere basically and so let me talk about um what i mean by that um so currently all federal spending in the U.S. is currently deficit spending. It's funded by either selling debt, you know, selling bonds um, to usually to uh, foreign countries like China. Um, and what that does, the problem with that is it gives them leverage over our economy. So anybody who you owe money to now has a say in how you do business with regards to how they get that money back. And so we sacrifice a bit of our sovereignty uh, every time we loan money to foreign governments, Uh, even uh, benign foreign governments or allies um, like uh, Britain or Australia or France, you know, it doesn't matter. They still get a say on how we do business. 
and that's of course that it's the same for corporations it's the same for individuals anybody you lend money to uh, now has a say in how you earn money because they now have a stake in getting that money back so they have to have a, a say Um, the other way our debt is funded is by printing money. This, of course, causes inflation. This is basic economics. Uh, the more you have of some item, the less each individual item is worth. And the more you continue to make of an item, again, that furthers the devaluation of that item. Uh, you, uh, make if you have a certain amount of coal on the ground and then someone else in some of the states uh starts mining coal too well then your coal is worth less because now you have competition and now you can you that competition can sell their coal for less and so each nugget of coal is worth less on the market that's basically how economics works um same thing with any scarce resources i mean it's basically you know that's why grains of sand are worth nothing virtually nothing and diamonds are worth a whole lot it's because there's a lot more grains of sand than there are diamonds in the world and so each diamond has a greater value because they're uh, scarcer it's a scarcer commodity same thing happens with money the more money you print of a certain currency the less each of that uh, unit of currency is worth now there's certain gimmicks that banks and states can do to stave off that devaluation they can uh, sequester some of that currency from the general population so it can't be spent so it exists but it can't really be spent uh, the problem with this uh, particularly in, in light of uh, the COVID-19 spending you know we spent uh, over uh, we spent several trillion dollars over the last 15 months on ostensibly over COVID-19 relief or at least that was the pretense of uh, most of the spending but anyhow uh, we made that we created that money out of thin air because it was all deficit spending we, we created and so when we did so um, each each dollar bill was worth less than prior to the printing of the new money and that well the gimmick was that the the bank was doing that the federal reserve was doing is that they were sequestering the money so that the money appeared you know on the computer you know it existed in you know but it did, did not exist in the real world where it can be spent where it can be changed where it can change hands so the money existed but not in the real world and what we uh created uh that multi-trillion dollar spending bills or that we did in the last 15 months or so 
what that did is take that money out of the sequester and put it into the general population where now it can be spent before the fed had tight control over that money uh, it wasn't going anywhere now it's kind of out there it's out in the wild uh, that money can now be spent once that happened the, the value of those dollars uh, that were released into the general population so to speak became less and so we're experiencing the inflation that we have now of course the inflation you'll hear uh, excuses that um, you know it's there's a, a problem of uh, employment you know people are not working you know there's not enough truckers to get the goods to the market etc etc but isn't it interesting and I think you'll probably can go back and listen to various podcasts where I talk about how these the bills that these COVID relief bills were going to lead into in inflation and of course it wasn't just me it was scores of other uh, particularly uh, conservatives who were uh, giving this warning that uh, inflation was going to occur it was not really if it was when and uh, turns out we were right so isn't it amazing that we just happened to lo and behold it happened and you can excuse it however way you want it um but that that doesn't take away from the fact that you created more money and therefore thereby devalued each individual unit of that money of that currency each individual dollar that's just it's basic basic economics um, it's it's so fundamental that only uh, intellectual could fail to understand it. And so, and uh, that, that leads me to my next point. You know, why why have fiscal responsibility? You know, it kind of seems like a stupid question in a while, in in a way. But really, isn't it the only question worth asking? is why is fiscal responsibility necessary and uh, basically a fiscally responsible nation gets to choose its own destiny fiscally irresponsible nations end up at the mercy of others or simply disappearing uh, of course you know you go back to the fall of the roman empire you know, there was a lot of uh, reasons for that empire's collapse. Um, but one of it, one of the reasons was uh, they were fiscally irresponsible. Um, they're, they're, the uh, Roman economy collapsed. They overextended themselves. They made promises that they couldn't keep. And... Uh, when they couldn't back up those commitments with money, then that was one of the contributing factors. Not the only factor, but one of the contributing factors to the fall of Roman Empire. And of course, every time we've seen this before, um, most historians will bring up the uh, 
uh, Weimar Republic of Germany. You know, they spent money hand over fist, and uh, that led to hyperinflation, and basically their economy collapsed. And of course, the fascists moved in because you know the fascists, you know, fascism historically anywhere in the world for it to take hold. One of the things it needs to you know uh, take hold of that host is for there to be some sort of uh, economic emergency. Well, it needs some sort of emergency. Usually that's an economic emergency. And that was the case in uh, post-World War I Germany and post-World War I Italy. Both fascist nations both had economic catastrophe. Of course, the whole world was, you know, at the beginning of the Depression. But they were, in particular, these countries were, you know, they they tried to spend themselves out of their economic hole, and it just doesn't work. It never works. The bill always comes due, and one of the things that it causes, I mean, uh, inflation doesn't cause fascism, but inflation is one of those things that make fascism possible or any kind of uh, authoritarian but it be it socialism or, or communism uh, those you know were communism and socialism and fascism any kind of uh, authoritarianism based collectivist uh, ideologies or governments took hold there was always a preceding economic uh, catastrophe and so fiscally responsible nations get to avoid that. They get to choose their own destiny. They get to choose how they spend their money. Um, fiscally irresponsible nations end up uh, at best at the mercy of other nations or other organizations such as the World Trade Organization or the G7 or what have you. Or they just simply disappear. They get absorbed into some other nation. Or they are split up uh, as the Soviet Union was split up mainly over uh, economic forces. Uh, they could not outspend the United States in pursuing the Cold War. So they basically spent themselves into oblivion. Which was, you know, that's chalked that up to the genius of Ronald Reagan. But anyway, just to reanimate, uh, to um, reemphasize the point, uh, fiscally responsible nations get to choose their own destiny. Fiscally irresponsible nations uh, have to exist at the mercy of their creditors. Okay, and you've seen this happen with Greece and some other EU countries where Greece was basically on the verge of being kicked out of the EU because, uh, in the large part, because of fiscal irresponsibility. So they had to accept austerity, austerity measures and they had to accept uh, terms from uh, different organizations, different banking organizations.
that were lending them money. So they they did not get to choose how they spent that money or, you know, setting up their own economic system or how they ran their own economic system. Uh, other parties had say. And, of course, this happened with a couple other countries that also, you know, the, the, the rest of the EU had to bail out. Um, but Greece, in particular, comes to mind uh, as a country that almost crashed because of a lack of fiscal responsibility. Moving on to the next topic, uh, I want to talk about American exceptionalism. This, of course, is a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, I would, uh, one of my most popular podcasts, uh, was one entitled, It's Okay to Love America, and I also followed it up, uh, this year, uh, recently, and I also did it an additional, um, episode or segment on it on 4th of July, kind of extolling the virtues of America, which are, despite what you may have heard and oppressed many, uh, the achievements of America are unparalleled in human history and are not to be easily dismissed. Um, for instance, we built the Panama Canal that changed forever the nature of commerce. Uh, between the Atlantic and Pacific nations forever. And uh, the United States did that. Uh, we sent men to the moon. Uh, heck, we even sent cars into space. You know, we send our, our, millionaire, our billionaires can send themselves into space now. Um, and this is something that's kind of derided, particularly from the left, because the seem to come from a place of jealousy, which all are, but um, they get the ride, they say, well, you know, these billion, you know, these billionaires can send themselves into space, but that money can be spent elsewhere. They fail to recognize that when these billionaires do these space programs, um, like Virgin Galactic and, um, and others, you know, when, when these people, when these billionaires use this money, you know, it's not like they buy it. You know, they go to NASA and buy themselves a ticket with $100 million and NASA sends them to space. No, these are people who built their own uh, space vehicles, their own space systems, you know, borrowing, of course, from NASA and other experts but basically doing them basically creating everything from the ground up their whole space centers from the ground up and their their space vehicles and so it's more than than just um you know jeff bezos or whoever sending themselves up in the space uh it's the employment of lots of of highly skilled engineers, technicians, uh, logistics specialists, uh, people from every trade 
you can imagine it, you know every pretty much every trade you can imagine uh, from a plumber to an HVAC technician to a carpenter gets employed by these billionaires uh, building their their spacecraft their their commercial spacecraft and uh, so it's not like this money you know there's there's always this idea that somehow the billionaire's money goes into this black hole and it's never seen again and no one ever gets to touch it again or spend it again that of course is a, a ridiculous notion but is one nonetheless held by a great many of uh, people uh, particularly who hail from the left uh, the truth is as i mentioned you know these billionaires are employing uh, probably hundreds, if not thousands of people, either full-time or part-time to build their space centers, their technology, their rockets, uh, the space vehicles themselves, infrastructure, you know, they need a way to get the fuel to the rocket. They need a way to house the fuel and, uh, they need buildings to house all the different components from the rock engines to the space vehicles themselves you know this doesn't happen you know the this isn't some billionaire uh building a spacecraft in his backyard with spare parts you know that only happens in the movie no uh these are people who are employing lots of other highly skilled people paying them i would imagine pretty well I don't know what their salaries are, but I'm sure they, they, they're paid pretty well to uh, pull them from cushy jobs like such as NASA or Raytheon or what have you uh, to work for them. So, you know, there's this notion that somehow the, the billionaires spend money and that just goes into a black hole. And that's just not the case. Um, if you really think about it for half a second, it's ridiculous. But nonetheless, people have their attitudes as if that were the case. Um, okay, but enough but of uh, billionaire uh, space companies, spacemen. Um, the other thing that uh, American exceptionalism, or what makes America exceptional, is what's called the Pax Americana. The idea that world peace is held by the presence of a superpower. And the idea is that one or more superpowers, um, you know, there's this idea of mutual assured destruction, which was prevalent during, especially during the Cold War between the United States and the former Soviet Union, is that, you know, no, no country would dare uh, provoke a war between those two superpowers because that would obliterate pretty much everybody else in life as we known it on this planet you know mutual assured destruction and so the threat of that basically kept the peace uh it's kind of an ironic sort of way and of course we did have wars throughout the 20th century while the cold war was going on but 
there was no there's there was never again anything in the scope of a world war you know after the um after the cold war began so it's one of those ironic events of history but uh it's easy to see why that happened because so when you have two world powers um neither one of them can afford to take out the other without basically destroying the world so in a weird way that helps keep the peace and now america is basically the sole superpower even though you know china is trying to be uh the next superpower and uh russia still wants to believe that they are but basically america for at least time being is the world's sole superpower and i don't think it's i mean again there's there's wars um you know being a superpower doesn't mean there there's an end to war but it means that you know uh wars don't get out of hand and again you don't have a situation where you have an entire world war the entire world in conflict with other countries as we did it in world war ii and so now um wars are basically you know small scale comparatively speaking uh you know guerrilla warfare uh terrorism uh things of that nature but very little entire nations declaring war on other entire nations because they know that the united states will probably take sides between that those two nations and you know you don't want to be on the wrong side of that um so you have this uh pax americana and now people say well you know why does why is in america you know why does america have to be the world's policeman and that's a fair question but my answer to that is who would you prefer uh would you prefer china to be the world's superpower china who has uh in the midst of committing genocide against the uyghur population and other minorities same china who persecutes christian and other religious minorities again has concentration camps would you prefer them to dictate the terms of uh civilization on this prefer maybe america same thing could be uh said maybe to a lesser degree of russia because russia is probably less far from western civilization than say china is but still they have their own distinct this civilization you know they they have you know uh, even though those differences dissolve day by day in, in America and uh, the modern world, there's still basic and fundamental differences between the East and West. And Russia wants to do things their way, and America wants to do things in, in the West, and Europe wants to do things our way. And so, who would you rather have in charge? That's really what the question comes down to.
I mean, if you want, even if you want to call it the lesser of two or three evils, you know, it is the lesser of those evils. That's your, that's the logical choice. So you have the Pax Americana, which, you know, makes countries think twice about launching wars against their neighbors. So I think that's a benefit of having America as a world superpower. And of course, America as supported by groups like NATO, the NATO alliance and other countries that are our allies. Um, the Pax Americana, um, backed by America's allies, basically has prevented more wars than it started. At least arguably so. I, I think any reasonable analysis of, of or post-World War II history would show that the stronger America is, the safer the world in general is. It doesn't mean that America, uh, the world is totally safe. It doesn't mean that there's the wars, that there's no more war, but it means that there's no large-scale uh, nation-against-nation wars, or at least uh, the way that that uh, traditional warfare has been fought in in the 20th century in particular. And, but on a, I guess, more positive note, um, not that Mer Pax Americana is not positive, but perhaps in more positive light is American ingenuity. American ingenuity sparked by capitalism and the free market is responsible for many of the modern conveniences we take for granted today. And as I talked about before, you have these millionaires and billionaires in the space race between each other and between uh, ESA and NASA and other national space agencies. You know, uh, competition is good. The competition tends to lower the price of goods and services that they provide because uh, one, you know, uh, you know, no. Uh, NASA no longer has the monopoly on sending satellites into space. If Jeff Bezos or or whoever wants to do it, um, Richard Branson wants to do it, uh, then for cheaper, then uh, those those satellites can be put up in the space for less, and then we spend less for our cable and for our our uh, cell phone reception. Uh, so that's the way it works. Most of that is down to American ingenuity. Of course, you know, from inventing the light bulb to uh, basically inventing the way um, uh, the world uses electricity. Uh, uh, also inventing heavier than air flight, you know, namely the airplane. Uh, we didn't invent the car, but we certain, certainly invented the mass production of the automobile. And uh, of course, our tablets, our computers, almost everything that, you know, we take uh, for granted and could not live without. Most of those things started or were or are uh, American inventions. In some cases, we created it, and some other country like Japan improved upon it, or 
uh, America created and we continue to uh, make that item or invention the best, better than anywhere else. And that is down to America being a free market economy because we, in order to sell things, we have to make things that people want to buy. And the better those things are, the higher quality they are, the higher, even this, the safer they are, the more valuable they are uh, perceived to be to the consumer. And of course, America has been the driving engine between a lot of the innovation, uh, basically the explosion of technology we've seen in the 20th century, late 20th century and early 21st century. And that is not something easily dismissed out of hand. And the final thing I want to talk about is probably um, maybe arguably the most important. It's the one that drives the other one. It's how we discern what those other things are, American exceptionalism, uh, free market, uh, fiscal responsibility. It's how we gauge whether those things are good and bad. And of course, I'm speaking of morality. I would like to uh, submit for your approval the proposition that morality uh, is necessary and matters. Uh, and perhaps it matters more in this society where so much can change on a diamond and so much power can shift between people and the ability for power imbalances to develop between nations and people and governments and governments between the government and the people. Uh, so morality is necessary and matters. Uh, unfortunately, it is, in my opinion, very poorly taught even by those religious experts whose job it is to teach and transmit the ideas of morality. Um, this is due to, of course, many causes. Um, you know, you're looking at the same Bible or slight variations of the same Bible and interpreting it in different ways. And of course, if you have a three or 4,000 or 2,000 year old text, uh, you're bound to understand it in different contexts as the writer. And so you have to sort all that out um, when it comes to religious writings, in particular, uh, the Bible, the Judeo-Christian texts uh, that give us most of the, the uh, Western civilization, their basis for morality. But because it's hard to settle on one single standard or one single meaning for these scriptures, uh, it's more necessary to be accurate and taught well. Uh, but on the other hand, the more people you have teaching the things, the morality, um, this would be the same pretty much of teaching anything. Uh, sometimes your teaching gets watered down uh, by 
people who haven't been exposed to the original source material as much. And so you can be teaching electronics, for instance, and uh, the people you teach, one will get it completely, one will get it mostly, and one will have ideas that are completely, well, incorrect when it comes to how electronics works. And so it's not surprising that we have the same kind of phenomena when it comes to religion, where you have uh, varying degrees of understanding, varying, varying degrees of uh, literacy and understanding and ability to communicate the ideas. Because you can have a perfect understanding of something, but if you can't communicate something to someone else so that they understand it the way you do, then you're losing something in that. And so, and this has been going on, of course, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, so we've gotten plenty, plenty of chances to get it wrong and misunderstand things. And of course, people, and of course, there's always going to be that purposeful misconstruing of scriptures to suit one party or the other to justify one action or the other. Um, but nonetheless, it, it, it is a fact that even by those, unfortunately, whose job it is to understand morality and be able to teach it, sometimes they don't get, get it right. And sometimes they do a very poor job. So, you know, I, my own personal experience, if you have uh, some sort of religious figure, uh, pastor in your local church, and you like that person, um, be thankful for them. Uh, if you can connect to them, if they connect to you, because that's not a given, and uh, and not all pastors, not all priests, not all rabbis are created equal, and so. And not all, just like all teachers won't connect to all students, uh, neither will all religious experts connect to all of the believers. Um, so if you find one that you trust, makes sense, then be thankful and try and follow them, particularly if what they're teaching seems to, to work in your life when you apply it. I mean, that's, I guess the ultimate test is when you, apply what they teach that it works and, it, and it's beneficial for your life and and your way of life and for your dealing with others and your friends and family and loved ones uh for what you're teaching is uh, for what you're learning from your religion whatever that is or spiritual guru or mentor or whatever leader uh, if that's causing problems in your life, then maybe you have to re-examine either your understanding of that teaching or your teacher. Somewhere there's a disconnect. Maybe it's just bad information. But if you find that person, then definitely appreciate that and try and stick with that person. Um... But 
getting on to the larger point of morality. More basically, uh, morality is dualistic in nature. Morality is supported by the twin powers, twin pillars of life and liberty or free will. Uh, for believers, God's greatest gift to mankind were life and free will. Everything starts with life and it's an edification. You know, that which uh, diminishes life, be it human life or animal life or any life, is generally thought of as evil or bad. And that which edifies it, that which helps uh, living things grow better or more or be more productive, uh, is considered good, generally. But also, free will. Free will is what set, sets human beings apart from not just the animals, but for those who believe, particularly in the Judeo-Christian theology that separates us from the angels. The angels are said to be servants of God. They must do what God commands. Uh, human beings are set apart from the angels insofar as we have free will. We are, we are free agents. We're allowed to decide for ourselves. Whereas the angels, as powerful as they may be, and though they may enjoy a well, a clearer connection with the creator, they lack the free will that human beings have. And, uh, of course, I would call free will one of the greatest gifts to humankind um, from the from the perspective of someone who believes in a creator an all all powerful being um, god if you will from from that perspective if there is a god if there's a creator of the universe then the way to honor that god is well the the greatest gift that a person that that god give you is to make him make you more like him and how does he does do that well he gives you first he gives you life and then he gives you free will um, because that's what he has he has the ability to do whatever he wants and so he gives you within your own scope of existence to do whatever you want make your own choices just the way that he has and so making you in uh, uh, almost his equal in a way makes you part of him, makes us closer to him. Um, but now people uh, take issue with this. Um, like, But even in a secular ethos such as Ayn Rand's objectivism, life and free will are keys to moral behavior and neither should be consideration for the other. So what do I mean by that? Uh, exercising free will at the expense of life is unethical. It's, uh, it's immoral. Uh, but so is life at the expense of free will. 
And so what does that mean, particularly in today's world? Well, you know, you can, man has the, is the only uh, creature known that has the ability to choose his own, their own self-destruction. And because of that, you know, we can unfortunately make choices that are self-destructive that can lead to our hasten our demise, our, our deaths, and, and our lives. And of course, you see that played out uh, in like uh, drug addiction, uh, things of that nature, we, where people act in self-destructive ways, which uh, hastens their shuffling off this mortal coil. Um, and then you have at the other extreme where you have, uh, particularly in the era of COVID now, you have people in authority asking us to, um, to eschew our free will, to give up our right to self-determination, to give our, up our liberties so that we may live uh, longer and we do not get this dreaded COVID disease or now the Delta variant. And so they ask us to exchange freedom, freedoms uh, in exchange for life. That is the proposition. Now, of course, it's, it's not always a reliable proposition. Obviously, they cannot promise you that you will have one more breath in your life because you wore a mask or because you socially distance or because you have a vaccine. No one can promise you that. Um, but although those things may help to a certain degree, uh, anybody who tells you, yes, you're going to live longer if you do these things, they're selling you something. They're trying to get you to do something, trying to get you under their control. Um, so there has been this balance. Uh, I would submit to you that if anybody asks you to uh, sacrifice your free will, that you can't talk to who you want, meet with who you want, do the work that you want, uh, practice your religion as you want, then that person is making false promises to you. No. Uh, the other part of that is that doesn't mean that we never sac we never make sacrifices uh, for others. Uh, what it means is that we make a rational decision based upon our needs and the needs of others. And we make a rational decision based upon what makes us happy. And Sometimes that means making other people more safe, making, uh, uh, giving, sacrificing for others, um, you know, like parents making sacrifices for their kids, uh, sacrificing so that their kids can, you know, sacrificing their, some of their free time, maybe, uh, you know, of course with work and, 
um, doing chores around the house and things of that nature. Uh, they're sacri making sacrifices, but it's a sacrifice that they feel is worthwhile because they want their children to be healthy and happy as they were or as they would have wanted to be when they were their age. They want to give their children a chance in this world, maybe a better chance than they had uh, when they're growing up. And that makes them happy. That make, gives them fulfillment. And so they make sacrifices of their time and energy uh, and other in other ways for their children. And of course, we sacrifice for our loved ones in many ways. We give our time, effort, and our money, in some cases, uh, to help those that we love um, do better. Because, not because that we owe them uh, these things, but because when we give, when we share what we have with others, that makes us happy and we can make a rational decision to make ourselves happy when more fulfilled by helping others being happy and more fulfilled too. And there is that balance. So neither, um, does morality call for us to be slaves uh, and neither does it, uh, want us to be a uh, hedonist. It calls for us to pick some middle road in between the two acting, uh, for life, but also acting for our own benefit for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of others, we have to choose this middle path, which usually is the one in the end which provides the most fulfillment. Now, that's a, obviously a deep physical, so philosophical matter, but, um, you know, we're just condensing this uh, huge uh, philosophical, philosophical teaching and debate into uh, about 10 minutes of your time uh, and a few hundred words few hundred of my spoken words or written words so yeah uh, but I just want to kind of reiterate this because I think it's important uh, if anything I talk about today in this podcast is important I think it's the idea of morality that there is morality and that there is a such thing as good and evil and choosing one Choosing good means not just choosing life, but choosing liberty and allowing other people's that choice. And you have to have balance. You have to attempt to strike a balance between your free will, doing what you please and what pleases you, and also doing for others as it makes you happy because it makes you more fulfilled, makes your life better because you feel better about yourself because you're able to help someone else. So it's one of those strange dichotomies that just um, exists in life. And you, we have to accept that if we accept it, uh, we can be happier for it. But just to kind of re-narrate re the central points before uh, I'll leave you for this week, 
um, morality very poorly taught, even by some of those in authority whose job it's supposed to be to teach morality. Morality is dualistic in nature. Morality is supported by the twin pillars of life and liberty, or free will. For believers, God's greatest gift to mankind were life and free will. Most, and they should be pursued. Morality is the pursuit of positive morality. Good is the pursuit of those in equal measure, not one at the expense of the other, but one uh, in order to edify the other. Uh, everything starts with life and its edification. Free will is what sets humans apart from not just the animals, but from the angels. Uh, even in a secular ethos, such as Ayn Rand's objectivism, life and free will are keys to moral behavior, and neither should be sought without consideration for the other. And I gave the example of, in one case, person, you know, abusing drugs and getting hooked on drugs as a self-destructive thing that should be avoided. Uh, but also, um, in the case of like the COVID crisis, not having to give up fundamental freedom rights, free rights or human rights, like the freedom of religion association and freedom of the press. Uh, we should not be made to give those up in order that someone feels safer about their situation. And so the it, morality, positive morality, requires a balance to be struck between the two. And pursuing rational self-interest does not mean never sacrificing for others. It means the sacrificing for others must bring us happiness because our love for those we sacrifice for. And most of us, I think, if we are... Uh, decent human beings we know we'll, we feel good when others we make others feel good uh, we feel bad when others feel bad particularly when we are the source of them feeling bad you know a person with a a fully developed conscience feels bad when they cause pain to others even inadvertently um, our nature is one that we want to make ourselves feel good but do right for ourselves but also choose those things that make others feel good and edify their lives so there you go you have to have those two pillars of life and free will in balance of course, it's very hard, almost impossible to get it right. You're certainly not going to get it right every time. But I think it's the effort that we put into getting those things right, getting that balance right, is what counts. Okay, so I am going to leave it there, and thank you for listening. And please, I would encourage you, if you haven't, listened to last week's podcast, part one, where I cover a another number of essential topics i cover um just the idea of 
being able to define conservatism, uh, being able um, to appreciate the wisdom of our founding fathers, knowing that they were on the right path, that they put, the, put this country on the right path, and that we should uh, continue it. It is the conservative way to the on the path that our founding fathers of this country, the ones who wrote the Declaration of Independence, the one who fought, ones who fought in our wars, particularly the Revolutionary War, uh, the ones who wrote the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and uh, those who were at the beginning understand that they had it right, um, or as could be reasonably um, been have done uh, in the 18th century. So please, if you will, listen to that. Um, the idea is that I've been doing this podcast for uh, nigh on two and a half years, or nigh on a year and a half. And I've been doing the libertyrelearn.com blog for even longer than that. And so this kind of puts together and hopefully a more or less organized way, an organized fashion, um, what the, the wisdom and, if I dare call it that, and information on what makes conservatism uh, superior to other forms of isms, you know, communism, socialism, leftism, why is conservatism better? Why does it make life better? And we just talked about morality and how, uh, you know, how more uh, conservatism is based upon those moral principles and upholding those moral principles of life and liberty. And so, please, if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, I believe it is episode 14. Um, it's part one of the series where I talk about all of the various um, ideas that I've ever talked about, either in the blog and or on the podcast. So please check that out. And uh, you can always do a deeper dive if you're interested in previous podcasts and so hopefully i can point you to those and please don't be afraid to engage in discussion with me or this podcast or the blog uh through whatever whatever means you have be it through leaving a voice comment on the blog or or a well-written answer or a written comment on the blog posting or a voice um, comment on the podcast so feel free to engage that's how we grow and learn especially me and thank you for listening uh, please follow us on libertyrelearn.com follow us online on uh, parlor at jp mac um, and also thank you for listening